You may be seated. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series that will take us through the week of Resurrection Sunday. And the point of this sermon series is to look at what is ultimately the glories of salvation. That is, to better understand what God has done for us through Christ, to better see the love, the mercy, and the glory that God reveals through salvation, to see both from the beginning to the end the process by which God brings sinners to faith in Himself and what He does to make them right with Himself, not just in in word, but also in deed. That is not just declaring they are right, but also making them right on through our glorification and our eternity with Him in heaven. But first, in order to see the glories of salvation, we need to understand why we need salvation. We need to understand what it is about us as humanity that requires God to offer His Son as a sacrifice that we might be saved from our sins. What is it that makes the work of God in redemption necessary for us? And so we want to do this by going back to the very beginning and seeing humanity's first sin in Genesis chapter 3. And so I would encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find one in front of you in the pew. The red book, Genesis is the very first book, and we will be in chapter 3. In order to first, though, set the context for what we'll see in Genesis chapter 3, I want to summarize uh, very briefly what has taken place in chapters 1 through 2. Frankly, uh, the most important thing to some degree, well, maybe the second most important thing in all of human history, and that is the creation of human history. Uh, Before Genesis chapter 1, there's nothing. I know in your Bible there's a table of contents, but in reality, there was nothing before that, okay? Uh, God spoke and out of nothing created, not just the stuff, the matter and energy which the universe has created, but He began to speak them into form. And so God began by making the heavens and the earth. He put the stars in their courses. He separated light from darkness in and of itself. He he created birds to fly in the air and fish to swim into the sea, beasts to to creep and crawl across the field. And then in what Scripture says is the crown of His creation, He fashioned man out of the dust of the air and breathed life into him, creating not just one man, but also uh, from his side, a woman fit to be his helper in what God had called them to do. And more than that, more than just giving them life, which you would think they would be grateful enough for that. No, instead he also literally created paradise for them. It's, it's not without cause that we say things that are glorious. It's like Eden. Because that's exactly what God created for the first people. Eden, a, a garden paradise where all of their needs were met. And they were to rule and to reign over all of creation, to care for it and to tend it to the glory of God. There was only one thing forbidden. And that was the one thing that was deadly to them. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, everything else in the garden is yours. Take, enjoy, delight in me. But this one thing is forbidden from you. And to partake of it means death for you. Well, that's... Genesis 1 and 2 with God's good, very good, perfect creation. And now in Genesis chapter 3, this is what Moses writes for us to understand what has happened. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to this uh, a truly saddening passage about how the first, our first parents failed to live for God's glory and turned in selfishness and pride towards sin. We want to make four observations that will help us to better understand both this passage and our own need of salvation. The first thing we want to see is a sinful rebellion. A sinful rebellion. You know, this whole scene begins by the introduction of the serpent. So the question is, who is the serpent? Uh, who, who is this, this beast that is more crafty than all the other beasts that God has made? Well, the best answer comes from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the very opposite end of the Bible. There we read, The great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You see, we know from the rest of the Bible that the devil was once Lucifer, an angelic being created by God with great might and wisdom and glory, you know, all of those things given to him by God became things of pride in Lucifer's heart. In fact, so prideful was he in his own glory that he wanted to take the place of God himself. And over and over again we see throughout the scriptures that pride is perhaps the one sin that God hates the most. 
And it was clearly evidence in the, the heart of Lucifer himself. And so as this passage in Revelation 12 has said, Lucifer was cast out of heaven along with those angels that rebelled against him. Now many are curious to know how it is a being that is created good by God can become evil. Where did the evil come, come from? Well, frankly, it is a, it's a great question to ask. Unfortunately, it's an unanswerable question. It's, it's a question that cannot be answered because the Bible gives us no answer for it. To some degree, it's a good question. It's one that I thought of often, but it's also not a necessary question. You see, 2 Peter 1 said, We are told the Bible contains everything we need for life and godliness. So God doesn't think that answer is something we need for life and godliness. It may be something that keeps us up at night, keeps us wondering, how, how could this evil have sprung forth in the heart of Satan? And yet, like Augustine, we need to say, uh, where God has not opened his mouth, neither shall I open mine. Uh, we don't know. He, he doesn't tell us. In fact, I think that the how is not nearly as important as the why. Satan is a lesson on the dangers that is the deadliness of pride. It stands as the root, Paul will say uh, in his letters, of many, many sins. And so when we read passages that say things like, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we had better be concerned to be killing pride in our life and cultivating humility. But you see, Satan is not the only person who rebelled against God, but specifically in our passage, we, he is shown to have led others to do the same. That's the entire point of this chapter, is showing the rebellion of humanity spurned on by Satan himself. You get the, the mental picture of the serpent creeping into this perfect paradise of God, of, of slithering around, around the trees until he, until he comes to Eve, twisting God's words into a temptation for our first parents. He takes what God has said and in all of his goodness and all of his provision for them and he, he makes it out to be something that sounds uh, astonishingly evil on God's part. The, the, the serpent asks Eve, did, did God really say? Did God really say that? Are, are you sure you heard that? I can't believe that God would tell you this. And immediately he creates doubt in the mind of Eve. And instead of trusting God, as she should, instead of running from the temptation, she quickly engages it in dialogue. Instead of saying, no, of course he said this. Don't try and confuse me. Don't get me to, to doubt and my, my, my trust and faith in the goodness of God. She, she begins to, to talk to the serpent. And very quickly, the same sin that caused Satan to fall becomes the first sin of humanity, pride. You see, if Eve reckons that she has the authority to doubt God's word, to stand in judgment over God and his character. Despite that God had said the fruit is deadly, Eve decides that it's good, that it will delight her taste buds, that it's aesthetically pleasing to look at, and it will make her wise like God himself. But of course, we can't lay all the blame on her, can we? Because who is standing there the entire time doing absolutely nothing? Adam, the husband. And we know this because it's not like she, she wanders around uh, the Garden of Eden looking for him. No, the impression you get is that she takes, she bites into the fruit and then says, here, have a bite. So the entire time, here is the husband, the one who is supposed to not just be the leader and the provider, but also the protector of his family, failing in that duty. Both rebel against God. And eat the forbidden fruit. And the words of the serpent, like they would be like God, is revealed to be only half true and completely false. Yes, they now know good and evil, but they don't know it like God knows it. Think of it like this. It's an illustration I've used before, so hopefully it won't, it won't bore you. But I think, I think it captures very well what's going on here. 
Imagine a, a, a doctor, an oncologist that is a doctor who specializes in cancer. And this man knows cancer better than any other person on the planet. He has routinely flown in to consult with other doctors uh, dealing with difficult uh, cancer situations. He knows all the causes of cancer. He knows the symptoms of cancer. He knows all of the treatments of cancer. He has seen several times the molecular construction of cancer under a microscope. This man knows cancer. And then one day he gets cancer. Now, does he know more about cancer? No. But he does know it differently. And in the same way, just as God knows good from evil in perfection, Adam and Eve now know it so much more differently than God ever will. Because now they themselves have become corrupted by evil. They have, been, they have become corrupted by embracing sin and rebellion against God. And that rebellion has lasting consequences. This is the second thing that we see here, and that is a broken relationship. One of the lasting consequences of sin is a broken relationship. Immediately, while the, the juice is still dripping off their chins from eating the fruit, they know something is different. Back in chapter 2, we were told that Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed. Now what are we told? The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now they feel ashamed. Before, they were shameless in the best sense of the word. They, they had no shame. Not that they, they flaunted their bodies, but without sin, there was nothing to be embarrassed about, both in body and in soul. They were completely free and open with one another in the perfection of their created goodness. They had nothing to hide from themselves or from God. Now all of that's changed after their sin. Suddenly, they feel shame. They feel embarrassed by their nakedness, and they want to hide not just their bodies, but their souls as well. They understand they are in rebellion against God, and this is not how things are supposed to be. So what's their solution? Try and sew fig leaves together and cover themselves and go hide. Who are they hiding from? Well, in some ways, each other, but more importantly, they're hiding from God. They can feel the change that sin has brought in their relationship to Him. It's broken now. It's broken. The result is that they run from Him. And frankly, their attempt would be funny if it wasn't so pitiful. Covering yourself with leaves and hiding in trees, is that how you think you're going to escape the consequences of an all-powerful, all-knowing God? I don't think so. In fact, this is the first attempt at works by salvation, and it's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. And even today, every time we think it's our own goodness that's going to get us right with God, and our own attempts to make God happy with us, guess what? It's no less pathetic than Adam and Eve's first attempt here. In verse 7, we're told the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Does that mean God didn't know where he was? No, of course he knew exactly where he was. But by asking the question, it makes evident to Adam the futility and the stupidity of trying to hide from him. Still, we must not miss the significance of this. Despite that Adam and Eve has run from God, that they've ran from God, despite that they stand now in sinfulness before the Creator, God still pursues them. God doesn't give up on them. At the same time, their actions have consequences. The once great intimacy between humanity and God and man and wife is no more. The relationships are broken. Once the relationship with God was broken by their sin, now their relationship towards one another has been broken as well. Adam tells God in response to his question, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God looked to the woman. What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's the old blame game, and now we know just how old it is, don't we? As the leader, as the head of the marriage relationship, the servant king that God called Adam to be, created him to be, he looks to him first. And what does he do? He blames Eve. The, the woman did it. She gave it to me. I, I, just, I, I just took a bite. But what's worse, he blames God. Did you see that? The woman, you gave me, God. You did this to me. You gave me this woman, and she's the one that led me to disobey you. So God looks at Eve. What does she do? Well, she's looking around. Can't blame Adam. I'll blame the serpent. The devil, he made me do it. How often have we heard that one? Over 6,000 years of human history, we haven't learned anything, have we? we? We still keep saying the same old things. My own clumsiness didn't get me burned. The coffee was just too hot. Who, who would know? I'm not gluttonous and lazy. Fast food companies make me fat. I didn't know I was supposed to pay thousands of dollars in taxes for two years. No one told me. Can I still serve in government? It's someone else's fault, right? Isn't that what we always say? It's got to be someone else's fault. My problems aren't my problems. I'm just a victim. In the end, though, there is no one to blame but ourselves. Our separation from God, our brokenness in relationship to Him, ultimately comes down to the fact that we have sinned. Not once, not twice, not a little, but a lot. Because at our core, we are sinners. And so what pours forth from our life is sin. What is the result of that broken relationship? It's the third thing we want to see, a lasting condemnation. A lasting condemnation. Through the sin of humanity, a curse is brought upon all of creation. Why is the world so bad? Why is the world so bad? Have you ever thought to ask that question? Why are the elderly run over in parking lots or allowed to freeze to death in their own homes? Why do marriages have problems and why do nations go to more? We made it that way. We made it that way. Originally, God blessed Adam and Eve. He said, all that I've created is good. Not, not just good, very good, he said in Hebrew. Tov ma'ov. And what did he say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's paradise. Now, because of their sin, though, these things become difficult to do. Where once it was easy to live out the commands of God, now it's difficult. In verse 16, we're told that women must now endure hard labor while giving birth. In verses 17 through 18, we're told now that men must endure resistance from the earth. The plow won't just slide to the earth and willingly receive the seed and spring forth plants anymore and crops. Now you've got to work for it. Now you've got to till against thorns and thistles and every kind of... Have you ever tried to, to grow a lawn from scratch like we have? I mean, weeds are everything. I didn't plant these weeds. Where are they coming from? I, had, I, I put down grass seed, and now I'm getting weeds and weeds. So you're constantly out there ripping them up and spraying them and putting more stuff down. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It seems futile. Welcome to sin is what God says. This is what you have brought upon yourself. The entire created order is dragged into humanity's sin. What's worse, though, is again, this relationship between husband and wife will also be affected. God says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What does this mean? When we look to Genesis 1 and 2, we see it was a part of God's plan for the husband to serve the wife, again, as the leader, the provider, and the protector. The wife was to be his helpmeet, to help him fulfill his duties. Now, all of that becomes twisted by sin. Now the wife desires to be the leader in the relationship. She wants to be control. 
And the husband, he doesn't, he wants to abdicate his responsibility to lead. He, he's glad to give it up, but at the same time, he resents the fact that his wife is doing it. So instead of leading, he becomes a boss and a bully. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why it is so easy to fight and say the cruelest things to the one person you love more than anyone else in the world, your spouse? It's because of sin. It's because of sin. It distorts everything, including human relationships. Even in the best of marriages, it's going to be a struggle because of sin. But again, worst of all, the broken relationship that existed between Adam and Eve and God is not just between Adam and Eve and God. It's now between all of humanity and God. In verse 22, we read, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Humanity used... I mean, just think about this for a second. Humanity used to walk with God in the garden. Perfect intimacy between creator and creation, Lord and servant. But now, no more. No more. By sealing off the garden, God says there is no simple way back to the way things are. In fact, the Bible says, just as God's promise, death now comes upon man because of sin. Not just physical death, but sinful death for each, uh, spiritual death for each and every person. Separation from God. It's not as if Adam and Eve's kids might somehow get back to the garden like, okay, uh, God's going to start over with the next generation. No. You see, the condemnation that fell on Adam and Eve didn't just fall on them, it fell on all of humanity. Later in the New Testament, Paul brings clarity to this. In Romans 5, he says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so sin spread to all men because all sinned. You see, the first person ever created, Adam, stood as our representative before God. Because he sinned, the guilt of Adam's sin is credited not just to Adam, but to all of humanity. We are regarded as having sinned in Adam and hence deserving of the same punishment. His condemnation is therefore our condemnation. Now very often we have a problem with this because, because especially in this country, we like our individual rights. We don't, you know, unless we elect them, we don't want anybody representing us, Right? I mean, we want to do what we want to do. We want to be judged on our own merits, and that's it. So this strikes us as, as bad. We don't want someone standing in for us. We can understand this is not just a one-time thing. This happens all throughout history. Considering an example from the Bible, the Old Testament. Remember the story of David and Goliath? What do you have here? You've got two armies lined up on the battlefield. The armies of the Philistines and the armies of Israel. And, and for whatever reason, uh, they're, they're kind of sitting there, but they're not actually going out to fight. And before, before it begins... This uh, extraordinarily large man, a giant in fact, comes out named Goliath, an, an enemy of the people of God, a Philistine. And he begins to mock Israel. He begins to mock Israel's God. Now what does he say? Look, you sit, like, while it's bloodshed, let's just end this simply. You send out your champion. I'll come as my people's champion. We'll engage in combat. And whoever wins, the entire army wins. So what do you have? You got one guy, Goliath, representing the entirety of the Philistine army. And because King Saul is too much of a wimp and a pansy, he doesn't have faith in God, he doesn't, is not the king that he's supposed to be, little shepherd boy David has to come out and be the champion for Israel. 
If he wins, what happens? All of Israel wins. If he loses, what happens? All of Israel loses. And so here you have two individuals representing entire nations. Thankfully, thankfully, the Lord gave the victory to David. And so all of Israel won. But this happens still yet throughout history. If you know anything about history, you'll know that, that Scotland once fought very hard for its independence from England. And there was a very famous man by the name of Robert the Bruce who led the armies of Scotland into war. And there was one day a battle in the city of Stirling. And it was on at the beginning of this battle where an English knight saw the leader, Robert the Bruce, uh, readying his men for war. And he said, I have here an opportunity for glory. If I will go out and if I will defeat Robert the Bruce, then my my fame will be legion in all of England, and I will pretty much be able to do anything I want. So he charges out for single combat with Robert the Bruce. Not any of the armies, just him and Robert. So what happens if Robert falls? You say, big deal, right? The army gets rallied up, and they go, and they hit the English the next day even harder. No, it doesn't work like that. Robert the Bruce is the only claimant to the Scottish throne. He's the only person that can take the throne of Scotland. So if he dies, Scotland's gone. There's nothing worth fighting for anymore. Now, again, Scotland won the fight. Robert the Bruce defeated his enemy. But that's another long, very, very long story we don't have time for. My point is simply this. Just like we see evidence in all of history, so Paul says here, fundamentally, built into the fabric of reality, the way God has designed creation to be, Adam represented the whole of humanity. So when he fell into sin, we all fell into sin. Because he sinned now, we've all sinned. Not just in guilt before God, but now we are actually born sinners with sinful hearts who actually commit sins of our own and receive condemnation for the sins that we commit. Adam's sin brought condemnation for himself and for all of us. And it's in light of this incredibly dark and depressing picture that we find our last thing this morning, and that is a gracious promise. A gracious promise. At this point, humanity's future looks bleak. Humanity stands alienated from God, condemned by God. Their sinful rebellion has ruined their relationship with God, with each other, with creation itself. But God is not content to leave humanity in such a situation. In fact, it's just after this first fatal sin that God makes His first gracious promise of salvation. In verse 14, notice what he says to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God goes on to curse not just the serpent, but Satan himself in verse 15, that which inhabited the serpent. Satan had possessed it to tempt Eve. And now God says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's more than just Eve, but it's also her offspring, her descendants that will experience this enmity, this strife between Satan and his offspring as well. And beginning with Adam and Eve's first sons, the Bible shows that history is all about this spiritual battle between good and evil. And who's going to be the victor? The godly descendants of the woman or the ungodly descendants of the woman following Satan as if he was their father? Who's going to win? Well, God tells us from the very beginning who's going to win. Because, see, he tells 
of a promise of not just multiple offspring, multiple descendants, but of one specific one. Listen again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, says the Lord, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises that from Eve one day a son will come and he will win permanent victory in this spiritual conflict. The long battle of enmity will come to a close as the serpent tries to kill the son but only manages to bruise his heel. Though the son does more than that. He crushes the head of the serpent. He steps on it, grinding it into dust that he may fight and wage war no longer. And the Bible shows the fulfillment of this promise of the Son is Jesus Christ Himself. And the perfect final victory He has won over the enemies was achieved on the cross. And you have to understand the, the, the glory of making that the instrument of Christ's victory. You, I mean, you can imagine Satan waiting in the wings, looking on. Here is, here is God's son in the flesh having just come through an unjust trial, having been beaten near to death, hanging on a cross like a common criminal between two criminals. There is the promised son, bloodied, degraded, mocked, seemingly defeated. And yeah, it's all according to God's plan. Because as he dies on the cross, he is bearing God's wrath against the sins of the world. The judgment we deserve the condemnation that is due us falls on this promised son. And so in that way, though Satan may tempt us to sin, the judgment we deserve has been poured out on Christ. And now when we turn to faith in him, when we say, it's not a matter of my, my trying to stand on my own before God, but I trust in this man who died in my place, God says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. The condemnation that stood upon your head has been dealt to my own son, Christ. And so in Romans 5, we read the rest of the passage and we see the glorious reality of salvation. Again, Paul says, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men because all sin. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sins, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He sums it up in this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul says Christ came as a new Adam. He came not under the condemnation of the old Adam, not like anyone else who has ever lived. And unlike what Adam was able to do, every single temptation he was able to say no to, no to, no to, fully and righteously obeying all that God asked him to do. And so now instead of being condemned by God for sin, he stands righteous and holy before God, acceptable to him as the one true and perfect man. And so what do we do? We tell God simply this, I don't want Adam to be my representative anymore. 
I don't, I don't want to stand and live my life under the condemnation that comes to all of Adam's descendants. I want Christ to be my representative now. I want Christ, the one true and new man, the true Israel, the one that all we are supposed to be is embodied in him and in his righteousness. That's the one I want representing me before God. How do you do it? What, what do you have to do? Surely you've got to live a good life. You've got to go to church. You've got to give lots of money. No, Paul says no. What does he call it? He says this, this salvation that God has brought in Christ comes as the abundance of his grace and a free gift. You'll notice, even the covering that Adam and Eve tried to put together wasn't good enough for God, was it? What did he have to do? He had to slaughter an animal. And he took the skins from that animal and he said, this is what you need to wear to be acceptable in my sight. The same way with us. There's nothing we can ever do to make ourselves right with God. There's nothing we could ever do to earn the, the salvation, the forgiveness of sins that he offers to us. Instead, just as God slain that animal and put its, used its skins to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, so also God in his grace and for his glory has slain his own son. And the scriptures call the Lamb of God. And he says, if you will simply clothe yourself in the Lamb's righteousness... If you will trust not in your own goodness, but in the goodness of Christ, you will be saved. Condemnation will not be your fate, but life and forgiveness will. We can't save ourselves, but God has promised to provide salvation for us through His Son, Christ. And so this morning, if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, this should cause you to stand back and to rejoice and glory all the more in the salvation God has given you. The condemnation that you deserve has been upon your head since birth. By trusting in Jesus, God has said that condemnation has been fulfilled on the cross. And though you deserve an eternity in hell for your sins. Don't ever ask God for justice when it comes to salvation because that's, that's what is just. You ask God for mercy. You say, God, I, I throw myself at your feet. I need your mercy. Count my sins judged on Christ. Stand back and rejoice in that and look forward to the coming weeks when we will unfold even more the blessings that are ours in Christ. But this morning, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you're not one that has ever trusted in Christ for salvation, the call for you this morning is to do that. The, the, the question that I ask people is, is, is not original with me, but it's straight to the point. If God were to strike you down right now and you were to stand before Him stripped of everything you've ever done in your life and He said, give me one reason, one reason, why I'll let you into heaven. Like, what are you going to answer with? Well, I tried to be good. Well, I never murdered anybody. I mean, there's, there's nothing we can say that's going to cause them to say, oh, okay, yeah, you're a pretty good person. Get in here. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because God is a holy and righteous God. And the Bible says he cannot stand to be in the very presence of sin. The only answer that's acceptable is this. Christ died for me. The, the punishment, God, that I deserve... The punishment of eternity and hell that I deserve right now from your doorstep to be sent there forever should not come to me because I have put my faith in Christ. I have trusted in His death for me. And so I stand here, God, not, not in my own goodness, but in, in the goodness and the righteousness of your own Son, Jesus Christ. And God says He freely gives salvation to all who ask for it. So this morning, the only thing for you to do is to acknowledge that God has provided salvation for you. And you call out to him and ask for it, receiving it by faith. This morning, let us, whether we are 
old Christians or new Christians are hearing the gospel for the first time, rejoice at the grace that God has shown us, the undeserved love that God has displayed for us by sending Christ as the new Adam to bear our condemnation for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that as your people we do not stand in ourselves and by our own goodness before your throne, but that we stand in Christ alone. Father, I pray that of those that are here, if there are those that are here today that do not know you, that you would move in their hearts and in their minds. That, Father, you would reveal to them the truth of the gospel, of the salvation that you offer, what Christ did on the cross. That, Father, you would open their minds and hearts to see this, to cherish it, and to trust in it for themselves. Father, draw them to you. Just as you promised that if Christ be held up, you would draw all men to yourself. Father, we pray that you would do that now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a minute, we're going to stand and sing. Let me just, though, invite you. Yeah, this morning, if you're here and, and perhaps God has moved in your heart and is calling you to do something, perhaps as a Christian to, to confess sin and to perhaps to, to, to rid yourself by His grace of something that has plagued you in, in your life, a bad attitude, a, a, a sinful habit, whatever it is, then I encourage you to, to respond now. If you're here for the first time and you're hearing the gospel and you say, that's what I want, then, then believe in Him right now and then come and tell us about it. Perhaps so you, you're still not quite sure you understand it. Whatever it is, if you're desiring prayer or counsel, I will be down front as we stand and sing in Christ alone. <laughs>